Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, this is shaping up to be another big week in court for Donald Trump. He attended a hearing in Florida this morning on the case involving alleged mishandling of national security documents, and the U.S. Supreme Court seems likely to hand Trump a legal victory, reversing Colorado's decision to remove Trump from that state's presidential primary ballot. But Trump could file an emergency application with the high court, asking it to block last Tuesday's ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which ruled against his claim of immunity from prosecution. This hour, the state of Trump's legal defense, and the stakes are huge for him and the country. Coming up after the news. This is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. Well, this is shaping up to be a momentous week for Donald Trump. He was in court this morning in Florida for the case involving national security documents he took to Mar-a-Lago after leaving office. The U.S. Supreme Court is likely to issue its ruling on the question of Trump's eligibility for being on the presidential primary ballot in Colorado very soon. And the former president is also likely to ask the high court to step in on last week's appeals court decision, saying Trump does not have immunity from criminal prosecution by virtue of having been president. Other developments are also expected in the various cases pending against Trump. So this hour, we're going to dig into the state of all the legal jeopardy facing former President Trump, the potential timelines and consequences for him and the nation as he seeks a return to the White House. Joining me now is David A. Graham. He's a staff writer with The Atlantic who frequently writes about Trump's legal issues. David, welcome. Thank you for having me. I want to begin by asking you kind of a big picture question. Um, This Supreme Court uh, really has come under fire for being too political. And you could say it goes all the way back to Bush v. Gore in 2000, where the Republican judges consistently rule one way, the Democratic appointed judges rule another. Um, And I'm wondering, you know, with the Dobbs decision, these ethical questions swirling about the court now, how do you think all of that affects the court and the way it thinks about these cases that are of such huge importance? Well, I think, you know, there's two things. One is that historically, the justices have been really reluctant to get involved in anything that they think might look like politics. Um, Even though polls show that most Americans think of them as political actors, they still see themselves as not. And so when you see an incendiary issue, they often sort of try to look for for a way to get around that. And I I think you saw that um, 
in the the 14th Amendment case where the justices are really looking for a way to avoid making a ruling on the merits. They're, they're not looking to make a decision, did Trump engage in insurrection? They're looking for a procedural way to say, hey, this isn't really our business. We don't want to be involved with it. Um, so I, I think you see that sort of nervousness just in the way they were asking questions about the case last week. Why would they not want to get to the merits? I mean, they don't have to, I guess. They can just say, hey, a state shouldn't decide for the whole country and be done with it. But, you know, you think there was a temptation. I mean, do you, do you think that they would have been more divided on those other questions like who is an officer of the government? Is the president an officer of the government? And did he, in fact, in what happened on January 6th, uh, uh, you know, constitute insurrection? I think that's exactly why they are reluctant to get to the questions, because they're so divided on it. So if they can find unanimity on the idea that it's not their business, they don't have to get into that. And I think they are conscious, uh, regardless of their views, of the um, the possible danger of a 5-4 decision that would remove Trump from the ballot or keep him on the ballot. Um, these close decisions tend to be disliked by a lot of people. They might be seen as illegitimate. They might further undermine, undermine the court. Uh, and so if they can sidestep that, they want to do it. And what can they do with the, that case, the Colorado case, the 14th Amendment case, as well as this appeals court decision that would look, if not apolitical, like not driven by politics? Yeah. I mean, I think in this case, it seems like what they're going to do is is sort of wash their hands of it and say that it's not an issue for them to decide. Um, and it's not up to individual states to, to kick people off the ballot. But in um, terms of the appeals court, what about that? The, the other issue of immunity? In, in terms of the immunity issue, you know, they can decide not to hear it altogether. They can just reject it. Uh, they could uh, opt to give it a quick hearing, sort of like they did in this case, o- or they could take their time on it. That seems less likely. You know, I-, I think if you talk to legal experts, there seems to be an expectation that either they'll simply refuse to hear it on the basis that the appeals court got it right and there's not a live question for them, or they'll try to dispose of it quickly. And quickly would mean what in terms of both the trial that would take place in Washington, the Department of Justice, uh, you know, the interfering with the election, subverting the election results? Well, like what would if they if they either didn't grant cert uh, and allowed the lower court uh, decision to stand or if they expedited it, what would that mean for the trial? That's a great question because fast for the Supreme Court is not necessarily fast by anybody else's standard. We've already seen that it took about a month for the appeals court to rule on immunity. And that started to seem like a long time. Um, you know, it would take weeks, uh, I would imagine, if they were going to hear the case. They'd have to have schedule hearings, get briefing, hold the hearings, uh, and then debate their decision on it. Based on what you know about how the court works, if they decided not to grant cert, I think you need four justices to to, to, to take up a case, right? And so what would that say uh, if they just didn't take it up? They just let the lower court ruling stand? I mean, I think it'd be an indication of faith in the, the lower court, um, a reluctance to, to get involved in this case, and also a sense that even among the most conservative members of the court, uh, there's not a belief that the president is immune from any crime he commits uh, allegedly in an official process. And that was a three to nothing decision. You know, it was sort of bipartisan in the sense that one of those judges was appointed by a Republican uh, president. Trump, was it? I think it was President Trump, wasn't it? Was that third judge? I believe it was George H.W. Bush. George, oh, okay, okay. So does that matter, do you think, the fact if it had been a two-to-one decision, say, would that matter, do you think, to the court? Uh, probably. You know, when you see a, a decision that is unanimous like this and is really very carefully reasoned and has a lot of detail, uh, you know, it, their audience for that is is partly the Supreme Court saying, there's not a live issue here. We got this. We've thought through this. Um, there's no daylight. You don't need to take this up. 
That's David Graham. He's a staff writer with The Atlantic. And joining us now is Shanlin Wu. He's a criminal defense attorney and a CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor as well, served as counsel to Attorney General Janet Reno under former President Clinton. Shan Wu, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, let me just uh, ask you that, that we're we're going to move along to some of the other uh, cases involving the president. But in terms of the Colorado case and the oral arguments, which were, of course, the audio was broadcast uh, live in many cases. It was available to the media. Uh, did anything surprise you about that hearing? Um, I think what surprised me about it was uh, the way that the 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 president's lawyers. Uh, were not able to offer any sort of uh, what I would call medium <laughs> uh, options for the court. I mean, I think the justices were making plain their view that they're not likely uh, to side with the challenge to the disqualification. But uh, if I were representing uh, the President Trump, then I would have been offering them, look, here are a bunch of paths you can take. Instead, as often seems to be the case, they take sort of extremist positions, uh, probably to, to please their client, who must be very difficult. Um, but for the Supreme Court advocacy, I mean, you're looking for a way to help the court uh, save face and find some reasonable ways for them to resolve the case. Uh, and you should be aware of the fact that the court's very worried about looking partisan. So, you know, they're really looking for the path of least resistance. And I, I did not see much of that type of strategic thinking um, on the part of Trump's lawyers. What would that strategy have looked like? I mean, what other options? It seems like, you know, he's headed for a clear victory. I mean, uh, right. <laughs> would they have would they have liked or would he have liked? You know, well, yeah, I won't answer the question. You, I'd like you to give us your thoughts. Like what, what other options might there have been that would have been less extreme in your mind? Uh, I think they the usual advocacy strategy would have been to focus more in on some technical issues about, let's say, process, uh, you know, talking about the question of did he have sufficient process uh, in Colorado. And, that, you know, that would be one way. That, that's one of the ways a lot of people expected that they may take as an off-ramp. And they may indeed still take that <laughs> just on their own. Um, but just been struck with that as well as the case you're just discussing with the D.C. Circuit, just what sort of absolutist types of positions that they take. And that's not necessarily the you know, best advocacy. I mean, here, it kind of doesn't matter because I think the court, for its own reasons, um, is going to create you know, a, a way to keep them on the ballot. Um, but just as, as a matter of advocacy, it's just not very impressive. David Graham, uh, there does seem to be some thinking here that the court is going to, in a way, bundle these two issues, uh, rule quickly and decisively for Trump on the Colorado case, and then do the same against Trump on the appeals court uh, question about immunity. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I think that connects with where they, you know, where the law is and, and what we expected from the appeals court as well. So I, I think that wouldn't surprise me um, in the least if we see something like that. And this this question, you know, we have seen, as I said at the top, these questions swirling around about ethics and in particular, Justices Alito and Clarence Thomas and gifts that they accepted that didn't report. I mean, I know that the earlier this year, the court adopted some ethics rules, uh, which, you know, many thought were pretty toothless. Um, but to what extent do you think the court is mindful? Certainly the Chief Justice Roberts is, but what about the rest of them? 
I mean, you see the chief justice talking about this, uh, but you also see the the court sort of adopting these watered down rules and playing defense when Congress acts on it. So, uh, you know, I see a court that is trying to have it both ways. They talk about not wanting to be politicians, but it seems like a very politician like response. They're going to indicate some concern about it, but they don't want to actually uh, commit to anything that that might be uh, a problem for them down the line. And I mean, I think it's remarkable to see uh, somebody like Clarence Thomas, given his wife's involvement in Trump's efforts to overturn the election, ruling potentially ruling on a case that involves the president's attempts to overturn the election. Hmm. My sense, and this, and this is based on what I've read mostly, is that the case involving the Jan- what happened January 6th, this is the insurrection, the election subversion case brought by the Department of Justice, which the immunity issue is hanging on, is the most important of the potential uh, or, uh, you know, the potential cases and decisions against Trump. Would you agree with that, Shan? Or do you think, uh, you know, the, the the documents case in Florida? I mean, they all have their own kind of importance. But if you had to, uh, you know, sort of rank them, where would the, the D.C. cases be? Uh, unquestionably, the immunity decision is a real linchpin. I mean, if the Supreme Court, you know, or if the D.C. Circuit were to have said that Trump as a former president has complete immunity for anything, then that would pretty much eviscerate uh, all of the (laughs) criminal prosecutions against him because he'd be arguing you're just not allowed to do that. Supremacy clause, you know, is going to trump any of the, uh, no pun intended, (laughs) any any of the state cases. So I I think that is absolutely critical. In terms of looking at the individual cases, uh, and I would say judging them as a former prosecutor, I have always actually felt that the, ironically, that the documents case uh, was the easiest one to go forward with for a real slam dunk. But the fact that there's classified information and the fact that Judge Cannon seems to be slow rolling it um, has made that one very unlikely um, to move forward very quickly right now. All right. We are going to continue this conversation with Shan Wu and David Graham. And we'd love to hear from you. What questions do you have about all these cases? How do you think these cases are affecting Trump politically? How do you grade the courts as they manage these wide-ranging charges across multiple states and jurisdictions? And which of the charges against him concerns you the most? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And we're on all the social media channels. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email us. We're forum at kqed.org. I'm Scott Schaefer, here this hour from Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. We're talking about the many charges and judgments former President Trump is facing and how they might intersect with each other and what the timelines for these cases seem to be. My guests are David Graham, staff writer with The Atlantic, and Shan Wu, formal, former federal prosecutor who also served as counsel to Attorney General Janet Reno and a CNN legal analyst. We would love to hear from you. If you have thoughts or questions, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. Or you can send us a message uh, via social media media. We're at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. Here's a question from one listener who writes, I'm not a Trump supporter, but these court cases are so weak. None will stick. They're obviously politically motivated and half the country knows it. I think these cases are making Trump stronger with his supporters, not weaker. Um, David Graham, what is the risk of kind of in, in the minds of voters or Americans just kind of like blending all these things together? Because you've got like six or seven different things. If you include the defamation case uh, with the writer E. Jean Carroll, where he has to pay $83 million or so. Um, but they're all very different, but yet related. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would uh, agree with the the that uh, listener and and disagree in part. I don't think these are just politically motivated. I mean, we all watched what happened on January 6th. Um, We've seen the documentary evidence of the the ways in which uh, Trump and allies tried to sort of game the process or subvert the election after uh, after, uh, in 2020. Um, But it's clearly true that it has made him stronger with many supporters. You know, as the Republican primary went on, each time he got indicted, his poll numbers seemed to go up. And I do think there is a danger um, that they do roll together. It's very hard uh, to keep track of these things if you're not paying full-time attention um, because there are so many. And, you know, throughout Trump's career, uh, litigation has been um, – it, it's a it's a staple for him. He's always in court on lots of things. Um, and I think, it, you know, it's, it's not surprising that that's the case now, but I do think it can muddy the waters for people who, uh, who aren't paying close attention. Xian Wu, what would you add to that? Um, I would agree with that. I don't think these are politically motivated at all. And uh, I think that when you look at them individually, uh, you'll see that the only commonality they have uh, is the former president's behavior. And frankly, you know, I've been critical for a while that uh, the federal cases didn't move fast enough. I feel that Attorney General Garland delayed um, in appointing the special counsel Jack Smith, and that has really put them behind the eight ball in terms of the timing. So I think if you look at these cases individually, like all cases, uh, civil as well as criminal, they have strengths and weaknesses, but there is really zero to indicate uh, that they are politically motivated, zero. Let me push back on that a little bit, because the other thing they do have in common is if you look at the people who are bringing these charges, you have a Democratic attorney general in New York State, you've got a, a Democratic DA in Manhattan, uh, obviously, the Department of Justice uh, and under former uh, under President Biden uh, Democrats. You have the Democratic uh, DA down in Fulton County in in Georgia. Uh, so even if that even if the charges themselves aren't politically motivated, uh, Shan, don't you think there is good cause for Trump's people who are inclined to believe Trump to believe that they are? Well, I think people who are truly inclined to believe Trump, uh, frankly, nothing is going to change their view of it. Um, But when you look at it from a systemic point of view, states have elected officials 
And so they're going to be from one party or the other. And if every time they bring a case and it happens to be high profile and the defendants from the other party, you can't just fall back on saying, oh, well, you know, that's a improper prosecution because what's the alternative? One party never gets to prosecute <laughs> the other party. And frankly, all these folks, um, attorney generals, state district attorneys, they generally have a pretty good history of integrity. Certainly at the federal level, there's a lot of effort made on A.G. Garland's part to really bend over backwards to avoid looking partisan. I think he's done too much of that where it ends up <laughs> having a partisan effect. Um, but I think if you if you trust the system, you have to say, look, there are courts, there are juries, and they are the ones who are the objective fact and law finders, ultimately. Well, let me ask you about uh, about Garland, because uh, the other big news last week was the special counsel uh, who was appointed by Garland, uh, who had originally been appointed by Trump. He was a Republican, Robert Hur. Uh, after looking at the case involving documents found in President Biden's house, uh, that there was no reason to bring charges against him. But the big headline from all of that was the way he characterized uh, the president, uh, his mental acuity, saying that the the jury would see him as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory. Um, Should or could the attorney general have done more to rein that kind of language in? Uh, absolutely. I've been very critical of Hur's uh, report in terms of the language and approach that he took, and that was very inappropriate language. Uh, one, it was he did not make it relevant uh, to his decision, and two, unfortunately, a lot of the takeaway with the media has been to misunderstand his report, and you'll actually see a news organizations saying that Hur concluded that Biden had uh, withheld classified information, but then didn't prosecute him because he was old. <laughs> um, and actually, that's not what the report says. It says that they lacked sufficient evidence to find that, and they couldn't refute innocent explanations. That was on Garland. I mean, a special counsel, unlike an independent counsel, still functions within the Justice Department, and the attorney general should have reined that in to say this language isn't appropriate. Now, from a political standpoint, of course, he likely would have to someday explain or testify about why he made any particular changes, and he was on solid ground to do that. I mean, principles of federal prosecution would say that you can't make personal slams like that, but probably he was very worried about being seen as making any additions to it, and you know, he just let it go out there in its raw form, and it's, it's a very gratuitously, very partisan written document. David Graham, what would you add to that? And what are you hearing in terms of, uh, you know, from either within the Justice Department or, uh, you know, allies of the president? Well, I think Garland is a little bit in a trap of Trump's making. Um, We saw the backlash when Attorney General Barr um, released a summary of Robert Mueller's report uh, back in the Trump administration. Mischaracterizing it. Putting the scales on that. And, And Garland has made so much of his time as Attorney General about trying to show that he is not an attorney general in that model, that he is standing apart from that, that he's not going to interfere, he's not going to be politically engaged. Um, and so I think that makes it very hard for him to take any action that might be seen as interfering with this report uh, for fear that he will um, he'll be portrayed as being just like Barr. 
We're talking about Trump's legal issues, and we'd love to have you join us. The call, the number to call is 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also find us on all the social media channels. We're at KQED Forum. Here's a comment from Marsha, uh, and this has to do with the judge in the Mar-a-Lago uh, documents case. On what legal basis could Judge Eileen Cannon be removed from the Mar-a-Lago case. Uh, Would it need to go to the full 11th Circuit first? I feel a growing sense of urgency to get her off the case. Um, Shan, what would you say to that? And like, do you share that urgency? I mean, there were a lot of criticisms of her. She is a Trump-appointed judge. She has tended to uh, view him pretty sympathetically in previous rulings. Um, What are your thoughts? Uh, well, I agree. She is a big problem. She revealed her issues early when she took that really unprecedented and legally bizarre uh, action of trying to have a special master be involved in a criminal prosecution in that way. Um, I, you know, I completely share the sense of urgency, but legally speaking, there's just no path forward here. There is no quick solution to that. I mean, theoretically, Jack Smith could try to move to get rid of her for bias. She's not going to recuse herself for sure. But he could try to make some argument about bias. That would result in a lot of litigation and delay. He wouldn't necessarily win that. And then even if he wins, the clock kind of has to stop for a moment while they put a different judge on. So there's no way that there's a speedy resolution to that on this latest issue with her insisting on turning over to the defense team the information about witnesses that the prosecution was very concerned about i mean he could have sought to do something called a mandamus where you go to the federal court of appeals and say this particular action is really an abuse of her discretion it doesn't look like he he did that but i think it's very very difficult to file something to uh, get rid of her Here's a comment from another listener who writes, I have a feeling that our government, once democratic, might no longer be a three-legged stool. The former president and the GOP have made a mockery of the presidential leg and the justice system. Is there a way to go back to the three-leg system, or are we beyond repair? Uh, David Graham, uh, do, do you agree with that assessment, or you know, are we seeing perhaps the Supreme Court uh, you know, kind of stepping up to the moment? It's a big question. Um yeah, I think you can see signs in, in both cases. In many ways, what we're seeing right now with these Trump trials um, is exactly what you would want to see. You're seeing trials going forward. You're seeing hearings. Uh, you're seeing Trump you know, being forced to come to court and defend himself. Uh, you're seeing appeals go through. So that, those things are, are good signs. And we're seeing rulings that generally accord from judges on either side of the aisle, notwithstanding, I think, the, the very legitimate concerns about uh, Judge Cannon's procedural rulings so far. Um, you know, I, I think the danger is what happens as you go forward. If these cases um, die because Trump is reelected and, and they're tossed, I think that doesn't give us a lot of faith. Um, and I think, you know, the, the question on the 14th Amendment is a, a complicated one. It's one where the law seems, I think, to a lot of non-lawyers fairly straightforward. Of course, the presidency is an office. Of course, he committed insurrection. Um, but it is a brand new area of law, so you can see why why the courts might be wary of it. I, I think we're in a sort of liminal state where... Um, we could be seeing things that look like good signs, or this could be uh, the sort of last gasps. Uh, and it's just really too soon to tell. And Shan Wu, as somebody who's worked in the Department of Justice, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about Trump really trying to use the DOJ and his, if he gets another term uh, to go after political enemies. Um, you know, we saw him try to do that last time. Uh, and, you know, the Attorney General Barr kind of stood up to him in a sense. Um, what are your thoughts? How, how, 
how much confidence would you have in a Department of Justice under another Trump term? Uh, zero confidence uh, if you take the former president at his word. I mean, he had an experience with appointing uh, Barr, who I felt was quite biased, but still, you know, Barr comes from a different mindset of institutionalists. He'd once served as attorney general, so at the end of the day, he still had some guardrails for himself. Uh, this time around, the Trump administration will actively look for people without guardrails, so that would be highly, highly uh, problematic. Um, and I agree with David, there's a lot of positive signs here because the legal system um, has tried to do its work here. I mean, it's brought the cases, even the disqualification, you know, kind of growing organically, trying to push this theory that he is disqualified. You know, those are great things about our system. But from a big macro level, I think some of the problems um, are quite weighty, including, I think, Congress having really sort of abandoned its role, and we're kind of letting the Supreme Court decide all the major issues of the day, and that's not the healthiest way to go. Well, the House is busy impeaching uh, Mayorkas, <laughs> so, you know, they've got their their plate full. Um, right. I do want to give the phone number out again before I go to the phones. It's 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And we go first to San Jose and Brad. Welcome. Uh, hey, guys. Great show. Um, yeah, I'm just going to call in, you know, I'm a lifelong Democrat, but I, I have a manufacturing business and I talk to people around the country and, you know, I've just noticed, you know, a lot of people say I'm just living in a blue bubble out here and, um, they all just say they, you know, people always bring up things like the, you know, the justice systems being weaponized against Trump and, and, you know, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, almost everyone I talk to who used to be independent and some people that used to be Democrats kind of just, keep repeating it. So I'm a little concerned about uh, that we may have overdone it here. And also people always bring up to me this, why does the media never talk about why people, you know, question 2020? And um, anyway, it's just kind of a consensus. I just hear it more and more now just around the country, just people telling me that they don't trust what's going on right now and they don't trust the administration. And um, anyway, I'm a bit concerned about 2024. I just, I, I hear that from almost everybody, just feeling like there's something wrong, hmm. you know, like our, our, our justice system is being abused. And it's just uh, concerns me about what's going to happen in 2024 for those of us who want Biden. David Graham, uh, what are your thoughts about that? And, and, you know, this question of it being political, I mean, if you look at the very, you know, there's so many different cases, it's hard to, you know, keep them all straight. But you've got in, in New York, you've got these fraud charges on the valuation of Trump properties uh, to you know, allegedly get favorable loan and insurance policies. You've got Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, uh, going after him on hush money paid to um, affairs he was having allegedly. Uh, you know, d- does that not fuel the sense that Brad is referring to that, you know, this is politically driven? I mean, I think Brad is identifying a real dynamic and I, it speaks maybe to a, the real division that we see in the country now. If you look at polling on these matters, you see majorities of people believe that Trump should be prosecuted for uh, the January 6th stuff. He should be prosecuted for the documents. Um, You see strong support for the immunity ruling. But at the same time, there is a group of people which is substantial. It's a a, a plurality, not plurality, but a a strong minority of the country, which thinks these are politicized. And so um, depending on the community you're in and and who you're hearing this from, it can seem like there's, there's really strong support for both positions. We just don't see a lot of middle ground from voters right now. 
Another listener tweets, the prosecution of Trump regarding January 6th is obviously political. It sets a very dangerous precedent, and it is a grave danger to free speech. Um, Shanwu, you know, you were in, in the DOJ, uh, you know, decades ago with Janet Reno. How do you think, uh, you know, the, what is the impact of social media and the sort of the bifurcation, if that's the right word, of our media and people getting totally different facts from different sources? Um, you know, how does that affect all of this and the ability of the country to come together, uh, no matter what the outcome of these things is? I think that's a great question for everyone to be thinking about. I mean, the social media presence now is a terrific double-edged sword. I mean, on the one hand, people can express themselves greatly and they have access to almost an infinite (laughs) variety of viewpoints. On the other hand, there's almost no way for a lot of people to filter through that and get objective uh, information that they can help curate for themselves. And a lot of times, for some people, it's just overwhelming. They'll know what to do with the information. Others set up an echo chamber where they only hear the things that tend to resonate with them. I mean, I think the question uh, earlier about, you know, why isn't there more discussion about people questioning the election results? I mean, the real answer to that is, well, there can't be any real discussion about it because it's completely nonsense. I mean, there's been zero evidence of something wrong with the election. But on the internet, you can find plenty of people discussing that. So I think that is a, as I said, double-edged sword there. Um, And one big concern I have with the elections coming up um, is the use of uh, artificial intelligence to generate basically very convincing looking disinformation about candidate statements. So that's something that, you know, is very dangerous to me. Yeah, we saw that uh, example of that in New Hampshire recently, where there was an uh, AI generated call sounded like President Biden urging people not to vote Democrats, that is. And I, apparently they did. There was an investigation. They, they traced it back to a company that did that. But, uh, you know, David Graham, how, how could AI play a role, do you think, in all of this, these legal questions? You know, it's a it's a wide open question. I think Shan is right that you you it's very easy to spread disinformation. Um, AI makes that easier, um, I, and I, I am also concerned about what um, sort of theorists of this stuff call the liar's dividend, where even if people don't buy into the AI, they're unwilling to trust any information simply because they assume that things are sort of seeded with with bad info, which it may be. I think that's certainly true of the election stuff. You know, I and many journalists. I've spent a lot of time trying to chase down the things that uh, Trump said about the election being stolen. Courts spent hours and hours uh, hearing the uh, the claims, and there simply isn't evidence to back them up. And it, it's very hard to discuss these things um, any further yeah. when there's simply not evidence to go on. Yeah. All right. We are going to continue our conversation with Shan Wu and David Graham. And We'd like to have you join us. Give us a ring at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Or you can reach out on email. We're forum at kqed.org or find us on all the social media channels. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. We're talking with Shanlin Wu and David A. Graham about Trump's many legal issues that he's facing, uh, some of which may get some resolution this week at the Supreme Court. And let's go back to the phones again. The number to call is 866-733-6786. And we're going to go now to Grace in San Francisco. Hey, Grace. Hi. Go right ahead. Um, the, the comment I had, it kind of was relating to the social media question that you guys were having before. I, the biggest concern for me personally as a young person looking at the political atmosphere is almost the religious and cult-like following that Trump has kind of garnered. And I was wondering if you guys think that maybe the avoidance of the complication of the charges, as in like taking one specific point rather than trying to explore other pathways for the prosecution or defense, is to kind of make the outcome more understandable and more digestible for potential voters. David, any thoughts about that? I mean, I'd be curious to hear Shanlin's view on that as a lawyer. Um, <laughs> I do think that consistently uh, Trump's lawyers seem to be ta- making arguments uh, that appear to be maybe dictated by Trump. They're not always coherent. Um, in fact, in the immunity case, we, we saw the judges citing different things that Trump's lawyers had said in different forums uh, to they were contradictory. It does seem like he's doing this mostly as political messaging. He sees it as a political tool to be able to say he's persecuted. Um, maybe he doesn't see a lot of uh, productive pathways for defense. Um, so I think it, it makes sense to think about a lot of what he's doing more as political posturing than as legal defense. Jan, what would you add to that and to the caller's question? Uh, you know, what would be some good places to go uh, you know, for the for the layperson, somebody who's interested but may not understand, you know, all the intricacies of the the legal process. Yeah, I, I think um, I would agree. First of all, with something David said, which is I, I really do think the lawyers are really playing for their client. I mean, his whole point has been to do political messaging rather than legal defense strategy. Uh, he's not a lawyer; maybe doesn't know any better. But the lawyers have done a very poor job in sort of trying to like navigate through that or steer their client in a better legal strategic direction. Uh, They just have done recently a very poor job. I mean, you know, he keeps losing in the courts. Their performance in the actual trials uh, has been, you know, kind of embarrassing at at times. So I think the legal strategy is not going well. I mean, there's a period where a lot of commentators said this is brilliant on Trump's point. He's unified his legal strategy with his political strategy. Well, it's not working out so well in the courtroom at at least. Um, Is it a mistake, do you think, for him to show up as he has? uh, In some cases, I I think it has been a mistake. I I think uh, his jury didn't seem to like it much. Right, exactly. I I think in the E. Jean Carroll case, he did himself a great disservice 
there by showing up and probably up the uh, the punitive damages some. And I think to Grace's question, one way to approach this, um, at a macro level, interesting, Jack Smith tried to make it a very clean, very focused case to speed things up in D.C. And it, it looks like a good strategy. I mean, may not ultimately work timing-wise, um, but it was a good strategy. In terms of how to get that information out through social media, um, I think many of the reporters uh, have a great grasp of the legal intricacies. You know, folks like David and other people um, have a very good grasp of that, and you need to sort of find people who can speak that clearly with it. Uh, there are some good resources, uh, like literally sort of like databases are being compiled, like the Just Security one likes to put together Chronicles events. A number of publications have done that. So you kind of want to look for places where they're giving you this database, like here are all the events coming up. And then you look, you know, for particularly strong, clear voices, you know, like David's, <laughs> um, to read and to follow and get their analysis of it, because it can be really overwhelming just to be have this constant flood of information coming at you on social media. Grace, thanks very much for that. Uh, a listener writes, I'm not sure how people can continue to say that these cases against Trump are politically motivated. Clearly, the Republican Party is not holding him accountable for any of his crimes, and they continue to be subservient to him. Somebody has to bring these cases to light. And at this point, it's extremely frustrating to see him get away with everything that he has. We all should be held to the same account. He does not deserve special treatment, nor has he ever. Um, David, do you think he is getting special treatment in some way? I mean, if anything, I think he's getting special treatment um, on the, you know, to he's gotten away with a lot up to this point uh, and, and may still. Um, we haven't seen a, an instance of anything like what happened after the 2020 election. So it's very hard to find a precedent. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be um, I don't want to be blinded. Like, it's clear that some of these uh, the people bring prosecutions against Trump. And I'm thinking in particular of Attorney General Tisha James in New York and um, District Attorney Bragg. You know, they have a political interest. They're elected. And, and that's maybe um, the, the fact of elected prosecutors may be a weakness of the American system, but it's a fact of the system and it's there. Uh, and this is why we don't have prosecutors who are able to convict. We have a, a court system. So they may have a political interest in bringing cases against Trump, um, but it doesn't mean that they can win. Um, and the question is whether the evidence holds up. And and so far, they've been fairly successful. We haven't seen a trial yet in the Bragg case, but he's gotten this far. Uh, and Attorney General James has been very successful. This is why we have a court system to test these things, to make sure that you can't just have uh, prosecutors who are acting out of um, imputed political bias. Well, and, you know, down in Georgia, although there are now problems with questions about the romantic relationship between the DA and the prosecutor that she hired, I mean, there have also been some guilty pleas, uh, Shan Wu. So it's not like, I mean, whether or not you think it's politically motivated, I mean, these folks have pleaded guilty. That's exactly right. And uh, I mean, I think that that whole issue with, uh, you know, a relationship between prosecutors is irrelevant to the case itself because they're on the same side. It's not like they can somehow taint the evidence against the defendant. Um, and they have gotten convictions. And, and ultimately, that is the safety net for the system is that it's not the prosecutors who act as, you know, the prosecutor and the judge and the jury. You've got these two other components, judges and the jury itself. Um, and that's really what saves uh, the system from ever being completely political, e even though, I mean, it's all political. I mean, everyone has uh, political views and that does factor into everything. It certainly factors in, you know, at the Supreme Court, obviously. Um, but that's why you have these different sorts of checks and balances in the system. 
All right, back to the phones. Again, the number is 866-733-6786. And we're going to go down to Montera. And Mark, you're next. Welcome. Yeah, hey, Scott, thanks. Um, so I just want to make the point that, you know, these it's hard to understand how relatively intelligent people can, can think of this as being some sort of political persecution. And that, I mean, to, to imagine something like that, would be, you know, would involve a conspiracy of un, unimaginable proportions, right? You'd have thousands, if not tens of thousands of people willing to buy into the whole fact that he's completely innocent. Take, for take for instance, when uh, when Clinton was being uh, sort of persecuted, I guess. No one really doubted the fact that he had an, in, you know, inappropriate affair with Monica Lewinsky. But in this case, with Trump, it's almost as if people are saying, oh, no, he didn't do any of that stuff. And somehow or another, everybody's running cover. There's, you know, all these people in the media and various legal institutions that are just kind of making this up out of whole cloth. And I find it remarkable that people actually buy into that. And hmm. it's just, I guess it's just uh, hold the whole part of the cult of personality and, and the effectiveness of propaganda. So. Yeah. Well, David Graham, uh, you know, Trump famously said during the 2016 campaign, something along the lines of, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't cost me a single vote. Um, there was some truth to that, as it turned out. And I think it's it's even more true now than it was then. Um, you see this among voters. I mean, to, to sort of bring in another topic, uh, over the weekend, we saw lots of coverage of Trump's comments about NATO and encouraging Russia to attack NATO allies who, who didn't contribute enough by Trump's impressions to defense. And you see even the sort of defense hawk wing of the Republican Party lining up and saying, uh, I'm not troubled by this or I'm not going to talk about it. I think as his grip solidifies, um, and as uh, you know, members of both parties are sort of drawn on by negative polarization, the, the fear or loathing of the opposite party. People are more interested in taking sides than they are in adjudicating the evidence. Uh, well, since you brought that up, I, I want to ask you about that because NATO, of course, has been sort of the bedrock of security for Europe since World War II. Uh, and, you know, Trump suggesting the U.S. might pull back from that. Um, you know, I was in Europe this summer as part of a fellowship and went to the EU and NATO and some of the people were saying that when Trump was president, that uh, he would say things along these lines and, and sort of the, the, the U.S. Trump, uh, the U.S. generals would basically slow walk it or just like sort of let it go and pretend he didn't say it, knowing that he would you know, move on to some, something else via Twitter. Um, do you think, and again, I know you're not a political reporter per se, but, uh, you know, David, do you think, uh, you know, that things could be different this time around, just as they could be different with the Department of Justice, you know, having had four years of experience learning how things don't happen despite what the president wants? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The comparison with the Justice Department. We saw Trump hiring people, um, you know, whether they were James Mattis as, as secretary of defense. Uh, Mark Milley as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, because they looked right to him. They sort of scanned as general to him, and it was a sort of superficial impression. But he's already preparing to make sure he's not doing something like that. He's going to bring in people who he knows are not going to, um, you know, sort of work side channels or, or do things to slow walk him. We'll see how successful he is, but it's a goal that he has now. And I think that will come out in things like NATO and foreign affairs, where we saw his aides... Um, depending on how you think about it, either sabotaging what he wanted to do um, or or sort of trying to create guardrails around uh, his uh, capricious decisions. 
Here's a comment from Ray who writes, Trump and his MAGA supporters attempted a coup. We all watched what happened on January 6th. I have been baffled since that day. How was that not an act of war? Why was Trump not arrested? Why are we in the ridiculous position of offering democratic processes to Trump so that he can destroy our democracy? Um, And I I think that, you know, certainly one of those cases, Shan, uh, that highlights that is the case in Georgia where you have him on tape Uh, talking to the secretary of state, the chief election official, asking him to find enough votes for him to overturn the results of that election. I think that's a great example of uh, why it's important in really hard cases to still follow the processes. Uh, That's one of the reasons why you want defense counsel to be very zealous advocates, even if the guilt seems very obvious of their client, because that's how the system works of being tested, is to have really zealous advocacy on both sides and a system that allows that advocacy process to play out. Because otherwise, it does become a situation like what Trump wants, which is whoever has the power gets to make things happen the way they want it to happen. Um, so I, I think even though it's very frustrating, I mean, it's a lot of times people say, yeah, it's ridiculous, so-and-so is you know, pleading not guilty. Well, everyone pleads not guilty. It doesn't matter what kind of evidence there is. You know, they're, they're on the surveillance camera at the bank. You know, the dive bomb went off is all over them, and people are like, you know, how can he plead not guilty? That's, that's the way the system works, and that's an important thing for us to follow, um, particularly here. Well, and, you know, in terms of how the system works, he was impeached after January 6th and he was acquitted in the Senate. But that would have been a way for Republicans like Mitch McConnell, who has no love for Trump, to have prevented him from running for office again. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. And let's go back to the phones. And John up in Vallejo, you're next. Welcome. Hi, uh, great show today. Um, as far as uh, one of the comments of your guest was um, the about the the many cases, I I see it as the the most prominent case of all would be his breaking of his oath of office uh, by prompting an almost diabolical conspiracy to interfere with Congress, and it's tantamount to treason. Uh, I think these are the most important cases, the Washington, D.C., Jack Smith case. Uh, I'd like your comment. Thank you. Yeah, it's an interesting question, Shan Wu. Um, treason. You know, what What are the, you know, what needs to happen for something to be regarded as treason? I mean, he was trying to over, to subvert the democratic process. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> because of the extremely unusual nature of what uh, Trump did, it's a uh, called into play and scrutiny um, a lot of aspects of laws that we usually don't look at. So the treason would have been very difficult um, to bring against him. Not only is it not used very often, but when it is used, it's really an espionage type cases where someone's working, you know, actively with a foreign entity, even um, to the point raised there about his oath. That's really fascinating because legally that quickly became ensnared as we saw in the arguments about disqualification. Uh, is his oath is different than that of another officer of the United States. So legally, that quickly descends into sort of a quagmire. Um, but again, I, I think you have to trust the system to kind of work through those technicalities. And the reason there are so many technicalities is it's just such a unusual situation historically. There hasn't been someone who has tried to abuse their power this way. 
All right, John, thanks for an interesting question. And let's go now to Rob in San Francisco. Welcome. You're next. Thank you. Um, I just, it doesn't seem to be made enough of a deal of how much Trump lies and projects and what a hypocrite he is just about everything he does. I mean, I remember when he first got elected, I thought, how this can't stand. He's going to go to jail eventually, but he's been able to, to stay out. But nobody seems to make a big enough deal about him saying, well, you know, Biden is using the Department of Justice to he's weaponized it against me. And that's exactly what he is promising to do if he's reelected or that he tells the NATO members they're not paying their way. And who's the one that stiffs all his contractors? I mean, he's almost legendary in the amount of times that he stiffs even Rudy Giuliani's legal fees. I mean, it's insane that nobody makes a big deal of it out of this in the media to point out, you know, the emperor has no clothes. He's lying to everybody. David Graham, that is an interesting point. Uh, one of you used the phrase, I think it was liar's dividend. I don't know if that applies here. Uh, but it is remarkable that he is using all of these cases to raise money and spending it on his legal defense. Uh, and as uh, as Rob says, in many cases, those lawyers don't get paid or they don't get paid with their with their billing. Yeah, I mean, I think Rob has a great point. Some of us have, have tried to make that point, maybe not as much as we should. I mean, and I think the weaponization question is is a particularly juicy one. Um, because, you know, we've been sort of shorthanding this, I'm sure I'm guilty of this even in the last hour, as the January 6th case. But really what he's charged with in the situation is, among other things, weaponizing the, the Department of Justice to set up sham investigations to try to keep himself in office. So when you hear him talking about weaponization, I think it's important for people to remember this is something that has already happened. And I, I think we could probably be clearer about that. Well, and there's also, I guess, if you keep saying something over and over again, it, people start to tune it out, right? Absolutely. Here's another listener who writes, I'd like to ask the folks who say the Trump prosecutions are politically motivated if they think Trump has broken the law in any of the cases. And Tom writes, if former President Trump is not found in violation of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, uh, and is not barred from holding any elective office, then what constitutes an insurrection that disqualifies a president? Will Amendment 14 need to be more explicit in its definition? Uh, Shan, any thoughts about that? It's hard, hard to change the Constitution. It, it is. Uh, I think the takeaway from the Supreme Court's uh, ultimate uh, decision where they're going to allow Trump to run, that's my prediction, uh, is that there's no stomach in the country to really use that disqualification um, provision when it comes to a president. And the, we're just we don't have the stomach to do that. So that's just not going to happen. That, that's what I think. <laughs> yeah. And I think states like California maybe look wise in retrospect of not having gone down that path and just waited for the Supreme Court to act. Um, David Graham, we're almost out of time, but what are you going to be looking for? What, what are the one or two most important things that are going to happen next? I think the thing that I'm following most closely is simply what new trial date does Judge Tanya Chutkin set um, in the, the election subversion case? I think that is probably the most important as a matter of American democracy and also uh, the one that's you know most likely to yield a verdict before the election. So um, that's where my focus is. And she can't do that until the Supreme Court weighs in on that question, right? Um, she could set a date. She may want to hold off. Yeah. She, she hasn't made an indication yet. All right. Well, thanks very much to both of our guests, David A. Graham from The Atlantic, Shanlin Wu, criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst. Thank you very much. Thank you. you. You've been listening to Forum. Thanks to everybody. Thanks to all of you, our listeners, for your calls and comments. I'm Scott Schaefer. In for Mina Kim, you're listening to Forum.
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.